0: a selection of texts that will uh, give some idea as to what I mean by the title of my sermon. No, I'm not a squirming under the, this is not the imposition of a church calendar. You know, we in historically reformed settings uh, have not just ignored the fact that there are certain religious holidays, but actively fight against some of that. Um, this is a, uh, Not an effort to do it, but also not do it. Uh, But I want us to see and be informed as to what is happening at that time that we call Christmas. As we celebrate the incarnation, what is going on? And in a word or in a sentence, the Father is giving to those who are his special children the weapon to win the war. The one who will come to destroy the power of sin and death. And this one who is Christ was prophesied to. And that's what we'll see in a couple of texts from the book of Isaiah. I'm going to also read from Revelation 12, something that I've preached on before, and then also from Ephesians. So bear with me as I read from four different sections. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, I'll read from first. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And then Isaiah 11, verse 6 The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And then lastly, from Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 14, speaking of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and also to those who were near. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask as we sit that we would be attentive to the word as it is proclaimed for in the preaching of your word, salvation is held forth to us and to the nations that it might be rich in its blessing in bringing, O Lord, light and understanding. Lord, where there is any waywardness in us, may we confess it and reject it and run from it, seeking for sin to be mortified in our flesh so that we might continue, O Lord, by your Spirit to be made like you, to be made holy, and to have our affections transformed as we look to the one who became like us yet without sin so that he might raise us to where he is even now in holy perfection. We ask then that you would bless us now through the preaching and the hearing of your word for it is in your name we say and ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, what I want to do this morning, in fact, I think I said this during our Christmas, not our Christmas, but our uh, caroling service. I was approached by a number of children asking me how long the service would last. And even this morning, I was approached at how long the sermon would be uh, because it's a, a special sort of one-off sermon, and my answer is always the same. In case you ever, any of you other children, want to ask, it's going to be at least two hours. Uh, I, it, it reveals this weird principle in men. And I don't, I mean, the whole human race. Uh, we don't like to wait. And waiting makes us uncomfortable. Uh, whether you get the number at the line or not, or you go to the DMV, and you get a number that says something like 4,180,293, and they're calling number four. And you think, I'm going to die here. <laughs> uh, and so we sing carols like, Oh come, O come, Emmanuel. And for thousands of years, from Abraham to the time of the incarnation, the saints of God were wondering, how long, O Lord, will you wait to deliver us? Of course, when Christ comes, John chapter 1, though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. What grants us the ability to receive the Messiah is the anticipation that comes in knowing the true moral state of men, that we are broken by the fall and we need a Redeemer. And in fact, in each of your lives, if you have ever confessed Christ, it is only out of an understanding, out of the sight of your sinful misery that you come to confess Christ, your Redeemer. That Christ came for a reason. That Christ did not come into the world to bolster Western capitalism, right? Or to make sure that churches meet their bottom line through all the year-end gifts that people make in the month of December. The holiday has not always been so commercial. And in fact, the very heart of Christmas is a heart of cosmic supernatural conflict and so let's not let the veneer of peace of the manger of candles and hay and all of those things that are colloquial and comforting to us mask what was actually happening now in revelation 12 i read what was actually happening and you may be wondering why in the world Is he preaching from Revelation chapter 12 about a dragon and about a child and this dragon wanting to eat the child born to this woman? Revelation 12 is a symbolic, it is a symbolic presentation of Isaiah chapter 9. It is the fulfillment of the one who will take upon himself all authority, but at the occasion of his birth, there is one who is present in the manger that is never, well, he's never part of any nativity that I've ever seen, and that is the devil. (laughs) That would actually be kind of an interesting take, and yet I've never seen that. Why? Because nobody wants their kids to dress up like that, right? Everybody wants their kids to dress up like an angel. Not that you should be doing that anyway, but do you know what I mean? My kid's in the pageant, and this year he gets to play Satan. (laughs) But he's there. Why was he there? Because he understood the stakes. He knew something that even we in the Christian church get wrong. My wife and I were discussing this morning the irony of churches canceling services altogether on Sunday. And I said, it's a lot like celebrating your anniversary while leaving your wife at home. How do you do that? How can you celebrate the victory of life over death of Christ coming into the world and absent yourself from the holy sanctuary where Christ says, hey, come and meet with me and rejoice in the glory of my work. And so, like all religious holidays, these are celebrations of historic events that have brought about for the people of God salvation. And Christmas is one of those key days. Yes, I know we don't have the day right. I get that. Some of you have trouble remembering the day of your birth. Or how old you are. And as you get to get older, it gets harder and harder. In fact, I had a great-grandmother who died in 1998, but she was born in 1895. And we would ask her, great-grandma, how old are you? She hated that question. And she would say, I was born in 1895, and you could do the rest. Now, I don't think it was just that she was offended. I just don't think she could actually do the math anymore. <laughs> And so the date is not important. It is the reality of Christ's coming. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as it relates to the topic of Christmas and spiritual warfare. Three points that I want to make. The great war. Second, the one who will put an end to war. And then thirdly, war and peace in the church. The great war, the one who will put an end to war, And then lastly, war and peace in the church. Let's look at this first point, the great war. Since the fall, and even just prior to that, there has been spiritual conflict. Now, what Satan did in his rebellion was declare war upon the rule and authority of God, the triune God. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit And they had, for all eternity, existed within the council and the fellowship of the divine persons. A little bit of Trinitarian doctrine here on Christmas Day. They are one God and three persons. And so for all eternity, God dwelt with personality and in the fellowship of the persons. And then God made all that is seen and unseen. He made us. He made the angels, and there was one angel in particular, Lucifer, of whom we read about even in the book of Ezekiel, who fell out of covetousness and jealousy, not only for the power of God, but the love that existed between the persons. He wanted the throne that the Father promised to the Son. He wanted that. Well, upon the occasion of the creation of men, God made man unique. The chief principal actor in all creation. And Satan, being the spoil sport that he is, decided to go to man in order to ruin and tarnish the pinnacle of God's creation. And in that, Adam and his wife, not yet Eve, the man and the woman were led astray. This rebellion, Satan brought men into. But the war had not yet begun in full. After Adam and his wife had sinned, God came to them and he made promises. And it was in those promises in Genesis chapter 3 that he says, I, God, will put enmity between two parties. The seed of the woman, the family of the seed of the woman, and the family of the seed of the serpent. The family or line of the righteous, and the family or the line of the wicked, And the way in which those families manifest themselves principally in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel and all the other nations of earth that do not fear God. Think Israel and Egypt, Israel and Persia, Israel and Babylon. This is the spiritual war. But it wasn't just nations. It is covenant peoples. And so when we look at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament paul in the new testament looks back and says not everybody that was a member of that nation was truly a part of the spiritual church the elect not all of israel paul says was israel in the same way that not everybody that's a member of the visible church is a member of the invisible church truly saved and so this enmity is not just between nations it is between those who worship christ and those who do not who have rejected christ's authority and in the book of revelation we see two names you know the mark of the beast everybody knows this right you live in america if there's anything we know it's about the mark of the beast those who are named by christ and those who are named for their father the devil And you can't walk around and see the names. That would be crazy. God looks at the heart, but that's for whom we are named. All the sons of men are either named through Christ or they are named through Adam, Paul says in Romans 8. You belong to one of the two. And between these two parties, there is great spiritual conflict. Between Christ the Messiah and Satan and their armies. Their families. And this war is revealed to us even now. Do not be so rationalistic, so secular, so Gnostic as not to think for a second that there is not even in this day and age with all the bright and shiny technology and all the spiritual things that we push to the margins of our lives oftentimes, including Christmas, that there is not still waging a war between good and evil. So what is Christmas in all of this? Well, Christmas is and has been, it's named for the Roman Catholic celebration of the Christ Mass. Now, we do not celebrate Mass. Mass is not a Reformed sacrament, because Mass is the re-sacrificing of Christ. And as John Owen so capably put it, if Christ is always on the cross, then he can never be on the throne in heaven. It obliterates the concept of Christ our great high priest. He is always the suffering Messiah, never the transcendent conquering priest and king of heaven and earth. But the name is fine, right? Some people call it Advent. I don't know what you call it. But what is the significance of it? It marks the coming of Christ into the world. And all who are born into the world are born into this conflict. Uh, there were a number of books written in England that take sort of place, like the Chronicles of Narnia, in that time in World War II. Where parents ship their children out of London and into the countryside because that's not where the Germans were bombing. There's a great series of books called Swallows and Amazons that also does the same. There are a number of those types of books. And what would often happen is those children would go and they'd have these grand adventures in the countryside. We would do the same. If there were cities in this nation that were being bombed, we would gather our children together and we would ship them off to those places that were less likely to be the target. Here's the problem with the spiritual warfare. There's nowhere to send our children. There's nowhere this war does not touch. Everywhere there is conflict and we are all born into it. In fact, we are born with a war waging within us because it is for the hearts of men. It's not for cities. It is for the hearts. It is for the souls of men and women and children. You and I are the battlefield, as it were. The primary locus of conflict between Christ and Satan. We see this in the book of Job. Satan comes to God before the courts of heaven. And here is Job living a righteous life. And Satan comes to Christ and says... What about Job? Actually, God is the one who says, have you considered my servant, Job? And then in the Gospels, Satan comes to Christ and asks that he would sift Peter. Give me Peter. Why does Satan want Peter? Because Peter is the one upon whom Christ will build the church. There is great conflict, and your souls are the target They are the object so that we as a church, what are we after? We are after the thing for which Christ came and died. For the lives and the futures of men and women and children. You feel this every day. I know you do. Again, Paul says the things I do not want to do, I do those things. And the things I want to do, I don't do them. Paul is this has this, as we do, feeling of internal strife and conflict between good and evil. Am I going to lose my temper today? Yes. (laughs) Am I going to lust or not? Am I going to covet or not? Am I going to open that gift, and then as soon as I'm done opening that gift, look at my parents and say, where's my next gift? Will I be content with the things I have Unless we are content in Christ, we'll be content in nothing, because he is the source and the fount of all satisfaction. And so in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, Isaiah is writing to a world that is in conflict, and there is nothing that we can do in our strength to win the battle. Nothing. All the kings of Israel proved that. David, the great king, the greatest king of Israel, maybe Solomon, I don't know, but they were both pretty weak men at certain times. They were imperfect. And almost every king that came after them, even Josiah, the great hope for Israel, was killed young in battle. Where is the hope? We cling to human hope all the time, right? Every four years we think, hey, maybe it'll be different this time. It doesn't change. Not really, not in light of eternity. And so we are all born into war. And not only are we born into war, but Christ was born into war. And not only was Christ born into our conflict, but Christ's own birth came in a time of great aggravation. Herod sought to put to death all the firstborn sons of Israel, much like Moses in the time of Israel many hundreds and thousands of years prior to Christ's coming. Christ was born into cosmic conflict that was bubbling over into national conflict. We have wars on earth because of the sinfulness of men. And chiefly, not just sort of vague wars and vague sins, but there was a covenantal, redemptive, historical, climactic battle happening and taking place at the birth of Christ. Satan knew who Christ was. The demons knew who Christ was. I don't think they understood the extent or the plan how he would redeem his people from their sins. I have every reason to believe that Satan and the demons were rejoicing when Christ breathed his last. They thought, we did it! Much like the white witch when Aslan was laying dead upon the table. This Satan shows his lack of sovereignty as a created being. And so Christ was born into the world in the midst of conflict in order to put an end to that conflict. But not before the zenith, the pinnacle, the fever pitch moment of battle, which took place where? On the cross. Now, we see little skirmishes, right? We see Christ going out into the wilderness, and there he did battle, as it were, with Satan. And he passed that first test because he kept his eyes upon the glorious promise of reward that the Father had given him. We see that battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus even says, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me and various temptations along the way. Chief among which is the giving up of the mission while enduring physical and spiritual torment upon the cross. When Christ suffered upon the cross, he was not only an occasion of physical torment, but he is like us. A body and a reasonable soul. Those two things that belong to all men Christ possesses in his humanity. And both of them suffered the torments, not only of having metal spikes driven into his wrists and his feet, but the judgment and the condemnation that the Father poured out upon him for our sins. Christ endured hell upon the cross. Great conflict and the prince, who had one day become king, showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He brought a fight that we could never bring to the enemy that we could never defeat. And he brought satisfaction to the wrath of a holy God that we could never bring. He would suffer in the place of his bride. And so Christmas is a celebration of the birth of our deliverer and all that it entails Without Jesus, to take the words of C.S. Lewis, it would have been winter and never Christmas. There would be no spring, no fall, no warmth, no redemption. Without Jesus, there would be no hope. Christmas is what it is it is glad tidings of good news because it is the end of of one kind of warfare because Christ has come to set us free. When Christ says, it is finished, he is referring to the conflict that we have with God the Father. And in his flesh, he unites not only Jew and Gentile together, but Jew and Gentile to Christ, to the Godhead to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Christ would suffer and die in order to redeem us. He is the one to put an end to all war. And yet, there is still war, isn't there? There is still conflict. In fact, we call ourselves the church militant on earth. And that's not because there's some sort of machismo bravado in the church. We're all sort of red-pilled and we're looking for a fight, right? We're exactly what the world tells us we are. We're actually much more. And we proclaim a great salvation, third point, war and peace in the church. There remains, even after the cross, after the resurrection of Christ, conflict. There is a conflict that remains for you and for me. There is still, there are still remnants of darkness of sin and rebellion. And what Christ has called us to do is to be his hands and his feet, to be his mouthpiece on earth. This is what the Great Commission is. Go into all nations baptizing and teaching. How are we to baptize? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What are we to teach? The whole counsel of God's word. Why? So that the nations may come under the headship of Christ. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Romans 12. What is Christ doing? And of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. How do we often live? Well, like it's the last days in Saigon, right? And we're just waiting for the helicopter to take us out. If we can just hold on for a little bit longer, we're going to go to heaven. But that is not the vision of the kingdom anywhere in Scripture. There may be times in human history where the church has been surrounded by her enemies, but even in the midst of what? Suffering and pain. We know what? That even the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. The first few decades of the church in ancient Rome were pretty hard days. And where is Rome now? You can go and visit the ruins. You can go to the Colosseum. But, like all mighty empires of earth, they come and they go. But the church, the church, even as Chesterton says, dies and is raised over and over again because they worship a God who knows the way out of the grave. We experience that. Even in our denomination, mission works fold. But then another mission work pops up, and then another mission work folds. People come and people go. But through it all, the church is attached to, built upon, the foundational work of Christ Jesus. And the reason why it endures is because Christ came as one of us. But he was more than just man. He was the God-man. And so there remains, to this day, even now, conflict. And we win with one word. That word above all earthly power. And that word is Christ Jesus. So let's say two words. (laughs) Or the word that Luther meant, Sabaoth. The mighty God, the deliverer. In fact, this is what Joseph and Mary were told to name their son, Jesus, Yeshua. It's the Greek name that comes from the Jewish Joshua. And even as Joshua led Israel over the Jordan in or through the Jordan into the new land, Christ would deliver his people out of curse and into liberty, spiritual freedom. We dwell with Christ in that good and green land. And inasmuch as Christ rules and reigns, it is manifest, but not fully. Oftentimes, we call it the now and the not yet. That Christ's kingdom is here on earth. But what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? That it would come on earth as it is in heaven. What is true of Christ's rule in heaven? That it is no longer antagonized by Satan. For Satan has been cast out. He has been bound and even while he reigns on earth in some fashion, Christ will, through his church, bring to an end, through spiritual warfare, through the word preached, through sacraments administered, and through prayers offered, through the fellowship of the saints, through the prayers of parents for their children, all of these things rightly done. Yes, doing the dishes with joy. Exalting Christ in all of these things. Every little toehold that Satan once had will slowly be taken away from him. And he, Christ, will give this victory to the church. And day after day, month after month, year after year, the kingdom of Christ and his government that will have no end in its increase will do what? When God says, of the increase of my government, there shall be no end, what does that mean? what it says. And there are times where we do not see it. And oftentimes this is because we judge things like men and not like God. We do not stand upon his word or his promises. But Christ will continue to rule and reign. And until Christ has come again in the second advent, and one day we'll celebrate that, we will celebrate Christ coming again not in humility, not as a babe, but as the conquering king of heaven and earth. This is what Christmas gives way to. And so, dear saints, as you celebrate Christmas today, as you think of its significance, think of Christ and all of his benefits, born into a world at war, and there at the cross, suffering the indignities. And the shame that was ours when he went to fight for us. And what he has procured, what he has achieved in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, Christ brought us peace by going to war for us. By crushing the head of Satan, by satisfying the wrath of God against our sins. And in this, we say Christ is our peace. The peace, you've heard it, peace in our time. Yes, peace in our time. Peace through the blood of Christ. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Even as he has taken away, even as he has killed death in his death, he will eventually, in his time, bring an end to all, all that Satan is endeavoring to do. And he will reveal his kingdom in full. And he will show himself to be the one who is no longer meek and mild, but a ruling and reigning Messiah. And so as you go to your various places today, wherever you're going, think about that. In fact, the end of our greed, our covetousness, the end of our own kingdoms and the toppling of our own selfish ambitions is what? The kingdom that Christ has come to establish. In our hearts, on this earth, a kingdom of peace. Let's pray. Lord, even now we would ask.